o'clock. Uh, join me. We will again read Romans 11, verse 32, down to Romans 12, verse 2. Same text we read last week. Last week we focused on verse 1. Uh, this week will be just verse 2. We'll not always be doing one verse at a time. You know that's not been our normal pace. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Real simple. Everybody who's ever lived has sinned except Jesus. All have been consigned by God to disobedience. Why did he allow that? That he may have mercy on all. And again, that is not everyone's going to receive mercy but he's allowed all to be consigned to disobedience that he may have mercy on all the ones that he will have mercy on. By God's grace, I'm in that group. If you are too, listen carefully because the message today, as last week, is for believers. Hopefully, if you're not a believer, it entices you, I, I think I need to become a believer in Jesus. True. But today's message, as, as last week's, is for believers. So verse 33, coming off of this chapters 9, 10, and 11 which will not revisit the details. Verse 33, Paul just concludes that section. Oh, the death, meaning only God goes down there. Paul wrote it, but Paul doesn't understand all that he's written. Oh, the depth of the riches. God is extremely wealthy, doesn't he does? And wisdom. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He knows things that we don't. He always does things perfectly, even when we think he's not. How unsearchable are his judgments, his thoughts, his purposes. They're just not ours. We would not do. We would not have aspirations that God has. And probably the one that confounds us the most is the next line. How inscrutable his ways. We're never in this life going to understand why God's doing it the way he's doing it. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, really known, fully known the mind of the Lord. Or who has been his counselor? Who's gone into God's office and moved... The, maybe some things out of the chair and, and, and sat in that chair, crossed your legs or leaned forward to God on the other side of the desk. Of course, I'm being very facetious when I say that. Who's ever been God's counselor? No one. God does not call anyone in to kind of give him some advice. These are rhetorical. Or who has given a gift to him, here's the key, that he might be repaid. You say, well, we talked last week about us giving a huge gift to the Lord. The question is, who, who's given God something that, that should be repaid? No one is implied because of verse 36, for from him. Who's ever given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? God owes you now. No, no one. Why? For from him and through him. And, as we head now into chapter 12, to him all things, all things from him, all things through him, all things are going to go back to him. That'll come into play in a moment. Why is all this happening? To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's the goal of everything, that ultimately God will be glorified. It's not about our comfort or pleasure. never has been. Chapter 12, verse 1, last week's message. I appeal to you, therefore, based off of chapters 1 through 11, based off of chapters 9 through 11, based off of chapter 11, verse 36, from Him, through Him, and to Him, all things, I appeal to you, therefore, to you this morning, Christian, to you, brothers, which means brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because of all the mercies of God. And here's last week's message, really in a nutshell, present your bodies, body means body, body represents the whole self, the whole life, everything about you, but it does mean the body. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy sacrifice, acceptable, the kind that's acceptable to God. Why would we do that? Because it's your spiritual worship. King James says it's your reasonable service. We looked at this. By the way, have you given your body to the Lord? Have you given your body? Last week, say, I didn't go forward. Well, no one did. But I had about a dozen people afterwards say, I really thought about, and I've learned a long time ago, I don't gauge success or failure of messages by who comes forward. So I've heard from several of you that inwardly, man, you, you, you kind of re-upped or gave your body and your life to the Lord. So I'm asking you this morning, have you given the Lord? This is my body. I'm giving you as a one-time thing. Here's my eyes, my mind. Here's my ears, my mouth, my hands, my feet. I'm giving you these things. God, if you want to use them, 
I'm initiating this. I know there's a call, but this is not slavery. I'm volunteering my life to you. Now, verse 2, if you've done that, here's part of what it would look like, today's text. Do not be conformed to this world. I hope you're already starting to internalize this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that when you have this renewed mind, here it comes, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That's the ultimate purpose, that will fulfill the will of God. You have to have a renewed mind. You have to be transformed. You cannot be conformed to the world so that you may be able to test and by testing discern what is the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? I'll tell you one thing. It's good, the verse says. The will of God is good. might not always be fun, but it's the right thing. It's the good thing and acceptable. Literally, the will of God that is well-pleasing, well-pleasing to God and perfect. Like when it's completed, we will all see that the will of God was good and well-pleasing. But I believe a person, listen, who has a renewed mind can start seeing, even in this life, how things are good and well-pleasing as it becomes perfected and complete. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Would you notice three things with me this morning? Number one, there's a call to be different. There's definitely a call in verse 2 to be different. I don't know all of your backgrounds. I won't go into mine. If you've been here for a year and a half, you know mine somewhat. I kind of hope your background is not what I'm about to confess to you. Uh, this is, I thought about this. I don't have a particular preacher in mind when I say this. But here's what I've noticed. The impressions as I've thought back over my life from the time I was a little boy to literally just very recently, as I've heard most preachers preach on Romans 12 two, be not conformed to this world, this idea of being different, I'm just going to tell you, and this is a very narrow way of doing it, most of the time what I would hear had to do with two things. It would have to do with our externals as Christians or some would take it, and I think they really thought that was the interpretation of the passage, but they would kind of take it and spend most of their time applying Romans 12 to be not conformed to the world to church services. Say that again. Spend most of their time, preachers like me, be not conformed, and they would spend most of their time challenging their people on the externals, like literally physical appearance, or church services. Be not conformed to the world. And just hammer away at that for a while. You say, what do you mean like appearance? Guys, I'm, no, no, no kidding. I've heard like things like the color of clothing. Spiritualized. Patterns of clothing. The material, the fabric. Spiritualizing. That. Just, denim is just not godly. Polyester, 100%. That's godly. And the thing is, as a little kid, I'm like buying this. Okay, I've I got to not do that and i got to do and And heights and depths and fit, I'm t- fabric, color, hair, makeup, jewelry, Romans 12 too. That's what it's about. Don't be like the world and just long time on those things. Some of you are going like, what in the world have you been listening to? Others of you are going, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was in it for um, all my life. I want us to be different, but I hope we realize that's not everything Paul's hitting at here. The other way I would hear it applied would be to church services, usually hammering away at one main thing, music styles. Almost as though music from 30 or 40 years ago, Christian music, that was the godly music, and what anything that's going on today, because it's of today, is just not quite as spiritual. Here's the only problem. They were still preaching this. I'm on a hobby horse right now. Forgive me. They were still preaching this same way 30, 40 years ago. So if you rewind, they were telling the folks then, this is not the good stuff. What was done back in the 20s, the 1920s, and the 1930s, and the late 1800s, that's the godly music. It's just like, wait a minute. Now I'm a little older. This thing's been written for 2,000 years. And you're always saying that anything that's contemporary of modern time is always less spiritual. It has to be like 50 or 100 years old to be godly. And it's just like, 
Is that what Paul's really hitting at here? Only the outward appearance and only the music styles. That's how I've usually heard this preach. I don't want to do that. I hope God has more for us than that. So what is the world? You say, well, it's dress styles and musical styles. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. If you want to write it down in your notes, this world really carries the idea of this age. It's this age. Guys, we live in an age. That's the idea the New Testament is written in Greek. Literally, it means do not be conformed to this age. What else? Watch this. It's this age and its mindset of our culture that is dominated by Satan. You're like, Jeff, no, we live in a Christian country. Yeah, right. Are there little pockets of culture that have a heart for God? Yes, little bitty pockets. But as a whole, the United States is not a Christian country that does not have a heart for God. Satan is kind of dominating the culture. And we're being told, do not be conformed to this world. It's not the planet. It's this age, this mindset, this culture dominated by Satan. Be careful. Always be on the lookout. So what in the world does this word conformed mean? We're being called to be different. This world, this mindset, this culture, we're supposed to be called to be different, not conformed. Of the word conform, MacArthur writes the following. Listen carefully. He says, quote, conformed refers to, so listen, this is what we're not to do, refers to assuming an outward expression that does not reflect what is really inside. I want to read that part again. Conformed refers to assuming an outward expression that does not reflect what is really inside. And he goes on and says, it's kind of a masquerade or act. Don't do that. For a Christian to conform to the mindset of the worldly culture dominated by Satan, and that comes on the outside, then you're acting and masquerading like something that isn't true. I've seen this, like Christians trying to be like the world, unsaved people, and every now and then you'll find unsaved people trying to play a game to fool other people in this life pretending to be Christians. And you just want to say, both of you, just stop it. If you're going to be lost and unsaved, you've only got a few years at the most. Why are you trying to be religious? Just be unsaved. That's what you are. You're not fooling. You may even fool us, but you're not fooling God. And to the Christian, why are you masquerading and acting like an unsaved person? Something else is inside. You're acting like something that's not really true of you on the inside. So if you want to apply that, here's how I would maybe define conforming. It's taking the shape of something other than what it really is. It means to, as I think Phillips, and I should have put this in your notes, uh, many people quote him or his translation, but Phillips actually in his paraphrase translation of this verse uses this phrase, to be pressed into the world's mold. So I'm almost done with this point, but I want, I want, to, put the, I want to get this across. You guys remember Play-Doh? You've played with Play-Doh. Some of you remember these children's toys. I, I really don't think they would be that fun because I think after about three minutes you would have no use for it. But they used to have like these square or rectangular like sheets, piece of wood, and it would have like, like thousands of pins on them. You remember those? And you kind of shake them out, and you could stick your hand in there, and it would just take the form of your hand. Or you stick your face in there, and it just conforms. Why? Because these pins are real soft. They're not set. They're going to give in to whatever puts a little pressure on it. Play-Doh, it's all flexible and moldable. And so you have a mold and you just kind of push it in or you crank it through something and it comes out like a star or it comes out like a spaghetti noodle or you're pressing it into a mold and you take it out and pop it out. It, it'll just shape whatever it's being pressed against. I just become that. I'm very, it, it's very impressionable. So here's my question, Christian. Answer within yourself. Are you very impressionable by the world of unsaved people that you work around. Young people, listen to me. At your school, if there's mostly unsaved kids, be it middle school, high school, college, whatever, and you spend some time with them, and they're bringing their culture towards you, do you just kind of conform and start speaking like them and thinking like them and feeling like them and acting like them? Or are you a nonconformist because something's on the inside that is different. You're like, why would I do that? That would be a lie. I'm not going to live that way. Adults, when you're down watching your kid's ball team, hanging out with the other parents, 
And if they're unsaved, can you kind of notice you're living life differently than them? You say, no, I'm kind of like all the unsaved people in my neighborhood, in my family. And by the way, here's a little trick in the family. Hey, that's just the way my family is. I get it honest. Which is an excuse to be sinful and be conformed to this world. We're called to be different. Be different. Christian, do not be like a chameleon that just changes color with whatever surrounding you find yourself in. Live differently than people at your work and in your neighborhood and at school and in your family and the other parents on that have the same ball team as your kids. I thought of this this morning. I wrote it down. Psalm 1-1. Let me read it. I think I marked it. Listen. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Hear that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This world system is constantly trying to press us into its mold, its way of thinking. It's all the time. It's subtle. So I wrote a thought. It's not difficult to find what is scornful and sinful and wicked in this world. All you got to do, turn on the television, you can find scornful, turn on the radio, you'll, you'll hear scornful, go onto the internet unfiltered, just kind of surf your way around, you'll find scornful, sinful, wicked, ungodly. Don't be like that. It's so easy, it's constantly coming at you. You're like, well, if it's constantly coming at us, what chance do we have? Point number two. Not only are we called not to be conformed, but we're called to be more fully what you really are. That's what Paul's asking for. That's what he's calling for. Be more fully what you really are. Don't act like what you're not. Be more fully what you really are. I'm going to keep the notes going. Paul says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Christian, this morning, is your mind, has it been renewed or is it being renewed? Why does Paul connect Christian transformation with the mind? Here's why. I got saved when I was nine. And when I got saved, literally, again, as I've said before, I don't know if I got saved back in the pew on the way down the aisle or down on this side of the altar. I I don't know. God knows exactly when that happened. All I know is nothing physically changed. Nothing externally changed. There was no halo. There was no glow. There was no brightness. Nothing happened externally when I came to Christ. But everything began to change internally. Christian. If it's true, if you can honestly say, I know I've put my faith and trust in Christ, God has come into my heart, you're being called to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's about the mind. It starts with the mind. It doesn't start with appearance. It doesn't end with appearance. It starts and really finishes, but it will involve the appearance. It'll work itself out. But it starts on the inside. I'm going to propose to you. If that internal change really happened... It should and it will work itself out. The word here, be transformed, is our word for metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. I say metamorphosis. What in creation, what creature do you immediately think of most about metamorphosis? The butterfly. So you have a caterpillar. He's inching along. He looks really gross. has all these legs. He's in the tree, makes a cocoon, stays in there a little while, and all of a sudden, I don't know what you did with the the caterpillar, out pops this butterfly. Why does that happen? Listen, because in essence, all along, the caterpillar was a butterfly. He became, on the outside, what he really was all along. It's the same word. Transformed is also used back in Matthew and in Mark, but I'm going to read the Matthew account. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Watch verse 1 and 2. I think you'll see them on the screen. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, so we're not only called to be different, we're called to be more fully what we really are. Chapter 17, verse 1 of Matthew. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, just the four of them at first. And he was transfigured. Literally, that's our word. He's transfigured, transformed before them. Well, what ended up happening? The Bible says Jesus' face shone like the sun. Peter, James, and John are watching this. And the face of Jesus becomes really, really bright like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. What happened here? 
Jesus, who veiled himself in humanity for a moment, lets Peter, James, and John see what he's really like on the inside. I'm going to tell you something. From that time forward, these guys had no doubt who they're dealing with. This is the Son of God. And by the way, there was a voice who actually said, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear him. It's like, we have no doubt. And that's why I believe the three days before the resurrection were very confusing for Peter, James, and John. In particular, it's like, but we saw. We saw the miracles. We heard him teach. We saw on the mountain, no man can manufacture. He showed us what he's really like in his nature. Listen, Christians, you are called to more and more as you live life to let what is real on the inside become so visible on the outside that people who know you the best, who've been watching you the longest, come to the conclusion, like Peter, James, and John did of Jesus, there is no doubt in my mind. My neighbor is a Christian. They are a child of God. Leave no doubt. The guy I work with or the girl that I work with or the girl that I go to school with and insert your name, would they honestly say, I've been watching them. There's no doubt in my mind. They are alive to God. They're dead to sin. They still commit sin, but it's not their lifestyle. They're just, they're just changed. They're becoming more and more as they live what they really are. Number three, back to Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what's the call here? It's a call to renew our minds. So it's a call to be different. It's a call, so not conform to the world. It's a call to be more fully what you really are. Let that out. Don't play a game. Don't masquerade. Don't act. There should be a difference. Be more fully. But now here, I think, is the key for us. It's a call to renew our minds. Now, I'm really rusty on my grammar. I should be better. And some of you are more rusty than I am. Uh, Danielle, you teach English, right? All right, so I've got to say this very carefully this morning. Look at those verbs. Look at verse 2. I'm going to propose to you there's a call to action. Is everybody with me? Paul is calling for action, but I struggled as I read this several times this week, like what is the exact call to action? Because he's saying, don't do that. Okay, that's not doing something. But look at, the, look at the verbs. Do not be conformed. Okay, don't allow that. But be transformed. Okay, wait a minute. Be transformed. There's an imperative. There is a command. I'm supposed to do something, but be transformed. What can I use here? I'm going to use this right here, right? So I've got a stool. So there's this. The stool is being moved. What is the stool doing? The action is happening to the stool. I move the stool. I'm knocking it backwards and forwards. The world is trying to knock us around. The actions here are two opposing forces being done to us as Christians. One is trying to call us to go this way and conform. And here's, what, here's our action. Resist that. In other words, what this stool would have to do, it'd have to be nailed down so that I, well, I can't really move it. But I can because it's not nailed down. So as Christians, we're supposed to like be solid, not easily moved. How do you do that? So we're resisting one action by allowing the other. So if you want to write this down. So how, do I, how am I conformed? What would someone's strategy be to be conformed to this world? Just go with the flow, guys. Just live life. In the culture, hook, line, and sinker, take it all in, you'll end up being conformed to the world. You say, what do I need to do to not be conformed? You need to be transformed, all right? So, what do I, so watch this. So, Jeff, what you're saying is we're supposed to transform ourselves. Is that what the passage says? Does it say, be not conformed, but transform yourself? No, it doesn't say that. The passage says, be transformed. The action is being done to you, put on you. I'm receiving the transformation. I'm not doing it. You say, how is that? Write this down. We do not transform ourselves. I'm very comfortable in saying that. God transforms us. How? I'm getting ready to take a little liberty with the text, but I think I'm on safe grounds. God transforms us as we allow His Spirit 
to renew our mind. So if anything in here, we know we're supposed to be renewing our mind, but really I think it's not allowing that and working with the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to renew our mind. And as our mind is renewed, it's going to work its way out and we're going to be transformed, which is that, again, metamorphosis. What's inside is going to come out. We're not going to be conformed to them. We're going to be changed. Our, our externals are not going to look like their externals because something's different in us and the Holy Spirit is training us. He's renewing our thinking. He's renewing our mind. How? By applying the Word of God. Now you say, Jeff, I'm looking at verse number 2. It doesn't say anything about that. I'm glad you noticed that and you're keeping me accountable. No one said that. I know what I would be thinking. That's a great point. It sounds really biblical. But nowhere in this text does it say that the way we're transformed is by God's Spirit renewing our, our mind by applying His Word. Well, I think it's implied, number one, Paul, watch, Paul has just given them 11 chapters of great doctrine. And what does immediately say? Having heard this, change your thinking to match what you've heard in the Word of God. Paul knows he's writing Scripture. This is not a shock to him. He knows this is the Word of God. God's using him. The Holy Spirit's speaking through him. And so what he's saying is, all that I've just written, change your way of thinking to believe that. And it'll come out in your life. But in other places, you have a reference there, so if you would... Go to 2 Corinthians. This is the classic passage. Anyone who preaches on this is going to go to these, this verse because it has our word in it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. And here's what we're going to notice. This renewal of the mind is a process. That's one of the main thoughts. It's a process. It's a process. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. We're jumping in the middle of a paragraph and I really don't have time to explain it all. Let's just say... But their minds were hardened. Who is there? Who's, who's those people? The Israelites. The context, as you should see, I'm not damaging the scripture, so here I'm going to invite you. Go back and read before this. And what you'll see is the context is of the Israelites reading the Old Testament. So Moses receives the law. There was a glory about this. His face shone. He puts a veil over himself. But really maybe to protect them, but also because the glory and the brightness of his face is waning. It's going away. Just like the glory of the law is waning and going away. I'm not blaspheming when I say this. The New Testament is more glorious even than the Old Testament. The Old Testament has glory. And the law has a glory, but its job is to show us we're a sinner. The New Testament is to show us how we're saved in Christ. It's just better. The new is just better than the old. The old, its glory from God is fading, but the new is is not fading, it's becoming more and more glorious to those who understand it. So Moses has this veil, verse 14. But their minds were hardened, the Israelites reading and being exposed to the law. For to this day, Paul writes in AD 56, to this day when they, the Israelites, the Jews, read the Old Covenant, Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted. Why? This is so important, this next line or two. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, Paul writes, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. A veil lies over their hearts. But when one, us, New Testament time, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Here's all that means. Unsafe person reads the scriptures. They're going to maybe learn some facts. If they're really paying attention, they can kind of see some things, but they're not really going to understand. You don't really get what, it, what it's about until you, by faith, receive Christ, and all of a sudden, here comes the Lord, and he turns the light on, and he starts illuminating, and you start seeing things you never saw literally just days before when you were unsaved. But it doesn't really start until you receive the Lord. Verse 17. So the context is reading the Word. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And that's a little confusing. I know from Romans 10 that the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. But the Holy Spirit of Christ is not Christ. So there is distinction here. So we learn that the Spirit is also the Lord. Verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Verse 18. And we, so they're veiled... Christian, here, you're going you're to hear a theme from me for the remainder of my message. It's going to be the same theme over and over. We all, with unveiled face, beholding, so the context is of reading the Scripture, beholding the glory of the Lord. 
We read the Bible, veil is lifted, what do we see? We see the glory of the Lord. What happens? Our being, we, as we see the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, meaning the glory of God. We're becoming more and more like Christ when the Spirit shines the light on the Scriptures. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is implied, and another, and another. That's called the Christian life. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The context here is of reading the Scripture. Some of you like Reese cups. Why? You probably like, well, I like chocolate, kind of like peanut butter, and I really like the combination of chocolate and peanut butter. It's really good. Okay, somebody figured that out a long time ago took two basic things, put it together, and now they're making a bunch of money up there in Hershey, Pennsylvania, right? Because you like that. I want to tell you a far more powerful combination. This is powerful. Simple. You say, I've heard this all my life, Jeff. Listen. It is a powerful combination when a Christian possessed by the Holy Spirit regularly encounters the reading and the hearing of Scripture. That's powerful. A Christian, veils lifted, Possessed of the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, man, it's really even more. But a Christian, possessed of the Holy Spirit, as all Christians are, comes into contact on a regular basis, reading and hearing the Word of God. That's powerful. It is a process. It is not a one-time, boy, that message changed my life. I think it fixed me. It is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time devotion. Boy, I had a good one this morning. I am forever fixed. If you just kind of pop in here every now and then, hear some music, check out the latest sermon, you are not going to see much transformation, even if you are a Christian. won't work that way. What has to happen? It's a process. I grew up, my three best friends growing up, middle school, high school, was names Jonathan, Wesley, and Keith. Of those three guys... Probably the one I spent the most time with, I don't even know why, but the one that would come to my house and I'd go to his house was Wesley. And Wesley and I, I've said this before, we would spend so much time together, he rubbed off on me. I'm assuming I rubbed off on him, but he had an influence on me. I'm scared of heights. This joker, I I thought about this yesterday, that joker had me climbing trees and jumping limb to limb because I didn't want to be, you know, the scaredy cat. Wesley, he loves climbing 30, 40 feet, jumping just limb to limb. We could have died. Thankfully, I was much stronger and wiry back then, so if I could just get my hands on the limbs, boy, my palms would be sweaty. I'd be very nervous, but i got to do what Wes is doing. But I don't know what it was. He seemed to always have these like little ticks about him. I've used this before. One of his ticks would he would do these eye twitches, right? He went through, he would go through phases. There was a section where he would kind of make his eyes big and back down. Just he's, he has no idea he's doing it. Just kind of doing that. And then he kind of does this little thing with his neck. It's real subtle, but when you're close, it's not that subtle. It's you know just almost a one two, one two, just kind of. And somebody came in our Christian school and preached a, a message out of James on don't say that you're going to do this or that. What you really should say is if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And so Wesley, very impressionable himself, he starts implementing all of those things. He starts going around saying, hey, are you going to do this? You're going to do it? Well, Lord willing. Lord willing. Lord willing. Lord willing. Everything was Lord willing. Lord willing. And so one day I'm at home and my mom's like, why do you keep doing that with your eyes and your neck? I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I don't have these things, but he's influential. We just spend so much time together. What Paul is saying is, if you'll spend time in the Word of God, God is far more influential and impactful than any person. He really will change your life. Where do you do that? The Holy Spirit who wrote the Word of God coming in contact with a Christian. It really is powerful. If you want to write it down. The Spirit makes us more like Christ as He uses the Scriptures to transform literally every part of our life. By that I mean, guys, if you spend time in the Word of God with the Holy Spirit, your thinking's going to change, your feelings will change. And eventually, yes, your actions will change. Last week I made a statement. It was in our handout. It's not in there this week. The statement said this. Faith 
is when God makes a promise and we live like he's telling the truth. Faith is when God makes a promise and lives like, we live like he's telling the truth. I want to share two examples of that personally, okay? This is not designed to be the Jeff day. It's just a text that warrants for me to share some personal illustrations. I've already told you I'm very scared of heights. My palms start sweating. Heart starts racing. I just tighten up. Just really don't like it. Only reason I went up in the Washington Monument is because all the guys on the senior class were calling me a chicken. So I was very impressionable. I think the second, the next time I go, if I ever do that again, like, yeah, I've already done it. Please, y'all going up. I'm fine. But equally as intimidating to me is because I'm a natural introvert is this. Maybe the most fearful thing other than heights, right there with it, is public singing. Public speaking is a fearful thing for me, but God decided to call me to be a preacher. But public singing, that's a whole other level. And the more formal the occasion, the worse it was. And years ago, thankfully, we've not done that, so don't ever ask me to be part of that. But we used to do weddings. I remember one time at a graduation, Deanna and I sang there, quartets, duets, all that. Guys, I'm just telling you, I know me. No one else knew except Deanna. I'd be over here and we're moments away from getting ready to sing or if it's a wedding and we're just kind of tucked behind the, the, the piano over there and the wedding is going up and it's like, I'm telling you, I can't enjoy anything. I am getting so worked up. My throat's closing in. My palms are sweating. I'm starting to... <coughs> Deanna's going, calm down. Stop it. Here's the thing though. You cannot reason with me. And I know anyone would say, there's no reason to be nervous. Everybody's pulling for you. We want you to do what you could say that that's not helping me. I'm terrified. I just want this over with. Nothing would work. But one thing I will tell you heavily knocked the edge off. Here it is. God gave me a verse, and it's true. Second Timothy. I think you'll see the ESV version of it. I memorized it in King James. It goes like this. Second Timothy, one verse seven, where Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind, which you see in the ESV is self-control. And literally, the only thing I've ever found that would help would be God saying, hey, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You're getting all worked up. If I could remember and rehearse, God has not given us the spirit of fear, timidity, that's not from God. Jeff, that is not from God, that's you. He's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind that has self-control. Knock it off. And as I would do that, I'm not kidding, my shoulders would relax. I'm telling you, if you took my blood pressure one minute earlier and you took it then, it would be two completely different readings. I'm not going to tell you I got up there nerve-free, but the Word of God transformed. You say, no, 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 Jeff, that's mind over matter. No, it's transformation. The other was even more impactful. It was in 2004. After 16 years of jealousy, just straight up ruining Deanna and I's relationship all through dating through 13 years of marriage at that point just jealousy I mean she had it and I had it about twice as bad I mean reading into everything thinking, questioning you know was this, who's talking to who's behind the counter, what's the exact I mean just stupid stuff I mean I couldn't sleep I mean, trying to work not two hours without thinking about it. And at night, it's just dominant, can't sleep. That's the only thing. You're like, what'd you do? Well, I went and bought a book. And it's like a psychological book. Tells you why you do what you do. I started reading that. They nailed it, man. They were like, like, yes, that, that, yes, yes. Chapter after chapter. Explaining like, that is exactly. And I kept reading and reading. And I kept thinking, now where's the chapter where they tell us how to fix this thing? And all they keep doing is saying, don't date these people, don't marry these people. I, no, no joke. I eventually, I looked at this table of contents like, I'm going to skip ahead and just look at the back. There was no answer. They, hadn't, they didn't have one. There was no answer. But in 2004, thankfully, it got worse so bad that I started turning to Philippians 4. And I lived in Philippians 4. And I basically memorized, be anxious for nothing, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, lovely, good report, 
Think on these things. If anything, any, if anything is praiseworthy, think on these types of things. Do what I've been doing, Paul says, and the peace of God will keep you. And, boy, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't a moment. It wasn't a day. You say, what ended up happening? God eventually did what the psychological books could not do and what my willpower could not do. I'm telling you, it was months later. I'm, I think between three and four months later, it finally occurred to me, I have not been dominated by that in like two or three days. And it just kept washing my thinking, which affected my very feelings and my actions. Watch this. God did it, but I had to repeatedly rehearse, watch, a specific passage of, of Scripture. Not just any, a specific passage of Scripture that dealt with what I was being defeated by. But when I started washing my brain with that, renewing my thinking, whole new way of thinking, all of a sudden, I'm now 14 years later. I'm not dominated by that. By God's grace, it may hit tomorrow before the day's over, but it has not dominated and marked my life for the last 14 years. Why? Because the Word of God is powerful. Please hear what I'm about to say, and I'm going to give you two points to finish out this third point. This is my testimony here. I want to share with you what's helped me immensely. I'm not telling you I never skip, but I begin my day with specific time with God in His Word and in prayer. That has changed my life. I will never outgrow that need. You're like, Jeff, you're a pastor. Surely you can. I will never outgrow that need. Hear these next two sentences. If I know me, if I were to shut myself off from daily private time with God and from meeting with God's people on a weekly basis, I would still be saved... But in no time, I would quickly revert and conform to the thinking, feeling, and acting of this age and this culture. That's what would happen to me. If I just cut myself off from meeting with God's people on a regular basis and from a daily time with the Word of God, it's, it's hard enough with those things. If I just put myself away from that, I know me, I'm going right down to where the world lives. My thinking will change, my feelings will change. I'll get all caught up in that and I'll be acting just like them. Now, here's the unfortunate part. I just described many, many Christians. In fact, some in this room. I just described. I'm not preaching down. I'm just telling. I want to help you. There is no shortcut. There's no quick little answer. It's a process. You daily... I oh, skipped. Okay. Well, get back on the next day. Spend time in the Word of God. How much? I'm not going to tell you. But you've got to let the Word of God be poured into you by the Holy Spirit and... Start. If you can't start your day, you say, boy, I'm just so sleepy. Okay, well, do it at some point. For me, I find the beginning of the day is crucial. But so many Christians do neither of those. They just kind of pop in every now and then and kind of catch back up. Haven't been in a while. And they wonder why all these things, why life's knocking them around. And here's what's worse. They choose heavy doses of worldly ideology. There's not a news channel out there you need to spend too much time watching. None of them. You're like, no, 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 there's that one. None of them. If you watch it all the time, you're going to be so worked up and you're going to run everything through the filter of Fox News instead of the filter of the Word of God. And you're going to think, there's no hope. There is great hope. Be careful. Of the options, anyway, I better not say, but those other options, good luck. But you've got to take everything in, in just a, a little bit of portion. It'll drive you crazy. They are not. Boy, I better not chase that. Everything that appears to be of our supposed stripe, be careful. It ain't, they're not all our stripe. We may have some things in common. But we're talking about spiritual things. Whole other level. Not only is it... A, process but you see number two it's a choice for God's will you say man we're spending a long time in one verse today but look how much is in this verse do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind why that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect I can't give this the time it deserves by testing you can discern you got to have your mind renewed guys there's no shortcut it's a process but it ultimately comes down to a choice choosing the will of God this is important. There's a lot of Christians, when they hear about the will of God, here's what they think. Hey, I'd like to know the will of God. If God showed it to you, will you do it? That's question number one. 
Number two, you think, not, I'm not saying all of us, but sometimes when Christians hear about the will of God, here's what we kind of think. We think of an inward prompting. I know the will of God, he's going to prompt me and give me this feeling on the inside that's going to show me, watch, which school, which car, which major to take when I get to school. And when I get out of school, oh, there's three or four options. The will of God, he's going to prompt me as to which job option. Which of the people that I could date that very well may become my spouse? Which one of them? Uh Uh-oh, we're getting married. Of the options that are out there, which apartment, which house? I need to know the will of God. And they stress out over that. By the way, these are important. So we don't want to miss God's will. These are not quotes, but J.I. Packer has had an influence on my next few thoughts. Listen. I do not discount inward promptings. I rely on them from time to time. I'm not downplaying and discounting. But, I'm going to shoot straight with you. Anyone who does not allow the Holy Spirit of God to renew their thinking by regular exposure and surrender to the Word of God disqualifies themselves from honestly thinking they receive promptings from God. I need to say that again. Anyone who does not on a regular basis allow the Holy Spirit to renew their thinking by regular exposure and surrender to the Word of God disqualifies themselves from honestly thinking they're receiving promptings from God. I hear it all the time. had a phone call just this week. Just this week. Very serious issue. I see definitely what the guy was talking about. Uh, I'm close to the situation. No one here. You wouldn't know them. I definitely know what they're talking about. But the more we talked... We were agreeing on this point, but he started talking himself into an action step that is not biblical. Hear it all the time. I just feel like God, and they kind of justify why they're going to do what they're going to do. And they think God's will is this, and they're talking themselves into it. Say it again. If you're not spending time in the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit renew your thinking, you think you're getting inward promptings. That's probably your will and not God's will. I'll tell you which school you're going to pick. You don't spend time in the Word of God? Playing like you're praying and playing like you really want God's will? I'll tell you which school you're going to pick. You're going to pick the one that has the best food, the one that has the prettiest campus, and the one your friends are going to. That's the one you're going to pick. I'll tell you which car you're going to get. You're going to get the one that is most like the one you've always wanted. Because you went into it, there's the one I want, and acting like you're... But if you're not spending regular time with God... You're going to lean to the one you always wanted. And I'll tell you which job. You know which job. The one that pays the most. That's, the, that's God's will. By the way, that may be God's will, but it might not. Who am I going to marry? The prettiest or the handsomest or the one that has the most resources that's going to fulfill what I think I need. Be careful. Our last note before our applications is this. God often reveals His will through circumstances. I am well aware of that, and I I, I believe that. He often reveals His will through godly counsel. Godly counsel, I believe it. He often reveals His will through inward promptings. Yes, inward promptings for those who fit the qualification. Be careful if you don't fit the qualification. That's probably you working that up. I've heard people, again, justify sinful actions as if God told me. God didn't tell them. So how do I know? The second part of the note. God's main method is for His Spirit to help us learn and apply the principles of the Word of God. So Jeff, that's such a simple note. It is meant to be simple. He uses godly counsel. He certainly uses circumstances. Hey, the door's closed. Guess what? Wasn't God's will. Real simple. God, I'll do that. Lord, if that's not your will, shut that thing down. I don't want to make a step. God recently closed a door that I was thinking was going to be a door for us here. Okay? A, 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 a staff person. God shut it down. I, want, I only wanted God's will for us, for them, for whoever it may be. So we're still praying to that end. And yes, it's through inward promptings, but His main method is still the Holy Spirit teaching us, helping us learn the principles of the Word of God and apply the principles of the Word of God. So just before I apply these things, I want to make something real clear. Be not conformed to this world. 
Be not conformed to this world. Christian, don't be conformed to this world. What I want to be clear is that Paul is not calling for Christians to be obnoxious freaks who live on compounds with their family. Can we agree on that? You may know somebody like, I I think I know some Christians. That's their idea of Christianity. Stay away from those people as they live on the compound, only coming off the compound to get groceries, go make a living, or on Sunday mornings meet with other obnoxious Christians. But other than that, we got to avoid those people because they're way down there and we're way up here. That is not what Paul is talking about. So how do you know that, Jeff? We are commanded in the New Testament to go present the gospel to people in a winsome way. You can't do that by only meeting with God's people on Sunday and then we scurry off like roaches. Oh, here's Monday to Friday. Stay away from all those people. No, you got to live among the people. Jesus says his people are in the world, but not of the world, but in the world. We go live among them. We live among them. And we try to win them and present the gospel. How? Jesus says we're salt. We're light. Salt adds flavor. Salt preserves. Salt makes people thirsty. You understand that? We're salt. We're light. Guys, we're supposed to be on the job and in the neighborhood where honestly the unsafe person thinks, you know what, I don't understand them, but I do kind of like having them here at the company. Seems like we just go better when we have a few of those Christians hanging around. That's a good thing. I don't understand them, but they're good to have in the neighborhood. And they don't have to dominate and take over. They just seem real good, stable neighbors who live peaceably. That's a good thing. I'll tell you one thing. They're not going to want what is freakish, and they're not going to want what they already have. Say, what do they need? Write it down. Christians should live attractively different. Christians should live attractively different. What would that look like? You see 10 bullet points. If you knew how much I edited, and we could literally make this 50 bullet points, and I'm going to feel, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to realize, oh, man, I should have had that one and not that one. It was more important. Can we fly through these? Jeff, what would it look like? Oh, this is where you're going to tell us that we're going to talk different and dress different, and guys, we should talk different than the world. Our standards, yeah, our standards, but that's not where I'm going to hammer. Watch, I'm going to go right here. The renewal of the mind. How will it come out? Write it down. We should be attractively different in how we use our resources. And how we use our resources. Christian, if you spend your money exactly like the unsaved around you at work, exactly like the unsaved in your neighborhood, exactly like all the unsaved that are in your family and extended family, then you have conformed to the culture of this age. This world, I promise you, is not lining up and beating the door down to give to God's work. You should be giving to God's work. If you are not, you're just conforming to this age. You have yet to be transformed in your thinking, and it's probably because you don't spend much time in the Word of God. We use our resources differently. Secondly, can't go into it long, we use our time differently. We're attractively, should be attractively different in how we use our time. Most people in America today are not in God's house with God's people. Thankfully, you are. You should be. But don't just attend. Serve God's people. Number three, we should be attractively different in how we live with an eternal perspective. Do you live with an eternal perspective? Not just going through this idea of eat, drink, be merry, Tomorrow we die, let's go all in on this life. We enjoy the... Hey, I read some things, I don't, not a show of hands. Hopefully several of you are still doing the reading that some of us launched into. We read 1 Corinthians 7 on Friday. There was a section in there, and all I could come away with was, Paul was saying, man, because the time is short, don't do that, that, and that, just like everyone else. Live with an eternal perspective. Sorry, I don't have time to develop that thought. Number four, what would real transformation and non-conforming look like? It would be attractively different in how we approach marriage and our marriages. The idea of marriage. You say, well, we're old fogies in the news. They're telling us every week. And even the laws are now against us and our way of thinking. So they're wrong. God says marriage is a man and a woman. Right? Should have got an amen. That's all right. A man and a woman. And that goes against a lot of what we see and hear in our society. Don't apologize for that. 1 Corinthians 7 the other day, a woman should have her own husband. 
I know what they do out in Utah, but it's wrong. She don't have her own husband if she's sharing him with three or four other guys. So that's a bunch of nonsense. So we're going to go the Bible way. We have a different way of thinking and about our marriages. Again, phone call the other day. I'm getting out. Getting out of the marriage because that person over here is doing these things. And I know they are doing that. But here's the Christian way of thinking. We don't just run and bolt. That's what the world does. We got to deal with this and work this out. Why? Because we're in a covenant that's a picture of a permanent relationship between us and the Lord. Number five, I think it is. I don't have a number. We're different in our attitude toward our employees and employers. Some of your bosses. I hope your attitude isn't this, the help. Resources, tools to advance my cause. You say, how are Christians different? Watch. You feel a responsibility for those people's well-being. In your heart, you're thinking, I'm going to do the best I can. Now, I can't do this so much. But with where we're at right now, I'm going to do the best I can with those people. In, in, a, in a way, their lives come under my umbrella, and, boy, a lot of responsibility comes with it. And it also goes the same for employers. So when you're an employee, which most of us would fit in that category, my dad had a little construction company, and now my brother runs a construction company, that company, and I've been on those job sites. I've been on job sites where guys wondering why, where's Russell or where's Charles? As if they have to be on this job site and not the other four or out looking at another job site or staying up till midnight running plans and calculating numbers so they can turn in bids. They think, well, they're only working when they're on our job site. Listen, being an employer has a lot that goes with it that we don't know about. So if we're an employee, here's our thought process. I want to do the best I can to glorify you, Lord, and hopefully by that provide a living for my family and in the process advance the cause and make my boss successful and the company successful. Lord, use me to be a blessing to this man or this woman. whole different idea than everybody else that's on the job that just wants to complain and gripe about the owners. Next one. We're different in how we act toward the opposite sex. Real simple here. Real simple. People fall into one of two categories. If you're a Christian, they're either our, your brother or your sister in Christ. How do you need to think toward your sister? How do you need to think toward your brother? In a right way. You say, well, this isn't my brother or sister in Christ, so I'm going to look at them as a sexual object. Wrong. They're the mission field. It's not the way we think. That's the way the world thinks. We think differently. Next one. And how we make life's major decisions. We don't just go through life doing what makes sense, what feels good, what everyone else would do. We run things through a filter. What does the Word of God say? We literally bathe it in prayer before just launching out doing what we want to do. That's different than what the world does. Number eight. Sorry, I'm hitting these so quickly. We're different in how we persevere with joy amid trial and amid injustice. Say, Jeff, have you ever had trials? Yes. Sometimes I handle them better than others. But we don't just fall down, be cast down, stay down. Have you ever had injustice happen to you? Sure. I've had injustice. I'm going to have more injustice. I'm going to commit injustice. We just keep moving on with joy. Almost shocked why we don't have more trial and more injustice. God, you're just so good to us. This next one, I need to take a moment, just a moment. We should be very different in how we view our identity. Very different in how we view our identity. I hope you tune in right here. The people of this world see their identity as mainly being their job. Or their family status. It goes like this. Who are you? I'm a business owner. I'm a doctor. I'm a pastor. I'm a salesperson. I'm a real estate agent. I'm a consultant, plumber, accountant, secretary, whatever. Or I'm a wife. Or I'm a wife and mother of two kids, three kids, four kids. That's how the world sees their identity. I'm going to throw it out to you. How else are they going to see their identity? That's pretty much it. But that's not how we as Christians see our identity. That is not our truest identity. Christian, if our identity is only drawn from those things, then our sense of significance will fluctuate. And it'll fluctuate in direct proportion to how successful we see those endeavors going or how harmonious those relationships are. If they're harmonious and those endeavors are thriving, we see ourselves as having a high worth 
We might even feel greatly significant. You've got to watch out for this. We might even become proud. These are my children. This is my job, well-respected. I'm a that. And all of a sudden, we get off kilter thinking that is our significance. Here's the problem. If those relationships or those endeavors start suffering, all of a sudden, we feel insignificant, maybe even depressed. And here's the real one that will put you in a tailspin. You lose that job. And the kids move out of the house. All of a sudden, I have total confusion. I don't know what I am. I don't have that job anymore, and I'm not mom all week. They're out of the house. What happened? Confusion because you had the wrong identity. You say, what is a Christian's identity? A lot of things, but I think the main one is this. I am an eternal child of the one true God. And that means I'm an heir of His. It is only by His grace. There's nothing for me to be arrogant about. But that cannot change no matter if I have a job, no matter what the title is, no matter how well respected it is or not respected it is. The main thing I am is a child of God. It can't change. That's where it's at. That's different than the last one. We're very different in how we view the reality of death. Death is a reality. I'm going to take time right now and 